Thank you. Well, it's been an interesting series. We talked about the three areas of the tabernacle and how God has made a way. The curtain was rent from the top to the bottom. Man can never take the curtain and tear it open and blast off into the presence of God. It doesn't work like that. There are ways to approach a holy God when you're a sinful person. And on the cross, Christ made it possible to be accessible to the very mercy seat, the throne, where God himself is in the holiest of all. Now, Moses was told that he had to build this tabernacle, this place of worship, and that the symbolism of it would help them to learn how to approach God. This is the Old Testament. Of course, in the book of Hebrews, which you're also studying, you know that that is explained, and that the tabernacle is a picture in the Old Testament of the worship relationship we can have now. And Hebrews gets into all of that. At the end of setting up the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and I'm going to turn you to quite a few scriptures today, in Exodus chapter 40, we read this, verse 33. Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar, and he put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, Fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. I'm going to talk about being an example. I'm going to talk about the cloud. For the cloud, the Shekinah glory, always accompanied a personal manifestation of God himself. We call those theophanies, a self-revelation of God. Now, God is an ethical being. He is a spiritual being. He can and did, and perhaps does today, manifest himself in physical ways. But he is able to do that because he's God. When Abraham saw the three angels, he thought they were men. He could relate to them because God manifested himself in angel form. In the early days in the Old Testament, he manifested himself and accompanying a manifestation of his form was a cloud. The cloud was not God. It accompanied this form of God. In Numbers 12, 8, Moses says, Show me, show me your glory, show me yourself. And if you remember, God puts him in the cleft of the rock and puts his hand over him and says, If you saw my face, you'd die. No man can see the face of God and live. But I will pass by you, and as I pass by, I'll take my hand away, and you'll be able to see some form, some physical shape, outline of some, some way experience what God, God's form looked like. Now, this actually happened to a man like you and like I. He actually saw the form of God. And accompanying that theophany was a cloud. So the cloud, the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud, is a physical manifestation 
It's a phenomenon. And it usually accompanied any manifestation of Jehovah himself. That's why when the tabernacle was finished and the Holy of Holies was ready, the place that only the high priest could go into once a year, and that with a sacrifice of the lamb whose blood was still warm in his hands. That's the holy place. The tabernacle was filled with the cloud. Not just the holy place, but the whole tabernacle. And even Moses, who had had that experience of being able to experience a sight of that, couldn't enter the tabernacle. So the cloud is a very interesting study. And you, if you would like, there's lots and lots of references in your Bible to that little cloud. You can just follow the cloud and see what happened every time God appeared to Israel. He is a light to Israel. And the cloud, if you remember, as they journeyed running away from the a million and a quarter people, remember, moving that number of people through the desert. And Pharaoh began to follow them. Do you remember that? The cloud removed and stood behind the Israelites in front of Pharaoh. And at night, it was dark. The Egyptians couldn't see them. But it was light to the Israelites. Light to the Israelites, dark to the Egyptians. And the cloud speaks of the eminence and imminence of God. Now, there are two words that you probably should know. Eminence means the majesty, the splendor, the size, the glory, the weight, the power, the incredible phenomena of God himself. And there are many words used to describe that. And God's eminence is his person in all that sense. His imminence is when all of that becomes immediate. Like when God himself, in a new and strange way, contained himself within a little bit of geography in a tent. I remember trying to think of this at Christmas once and thinking, when God became a baby, he knew he'd to compress that vastness, greatness, all that power into littleness. A baby was the answer. But where to find the one, the one who'd say, be born in me or let me bear your son. And I wrote a little poem about that. But I was struggling with this concept of, yes, God is everywhere. He is not absent from anywhere. But there are some times when in a very special way, his eminence becomes imminence. That happened when Jesus, of course, was on this earth. And again, in the Christmas play, I tried to capture that in the little boy's song that was Jesus at 12. And I tried to talk about divinity breathing in air with a boy's lungs, eternity eating a meal with a boy's joy, the Trinity coming to stay in a boy's house, in a boy's pain, in a boy's world. Eminence, imminence, compressed, that we might, we little dust people, might somehow see the form of God and experience that. Eminence contained, imminence experienced, holiness explained in a boy. The glory cloud appears when eminence becomes imminence in the scriptures. And it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. The tabernacle is a picture that later became the temple of you and I. And the idea in the New Testament 
is that all of God in his eminence, his mightiness, his majesty, his power, his person can come into our soul made large enough by our creator to contain him and be imminent in us. So the cloud, the Holy Spirit, can cover the temple. And what happens when that happens? Well, what happened in the Old Testament, you couldn't see the tent. You could see the form of it in the cloud, but only the form of it disappeared. And when the fullness of the Holy Spirit is spoken about in the scriptures, that is the intent, that our temple, our tabernacle, can become the place where the cloud covers us so that people see Christ instead of us. They're conscious of the very form of God about our lives. Now, if you want to be an example to your children, you have to get hold of what the fullness of the Spirit is all about. Jesus said he would come and tabernacle amongst us, and he did in a Jewish body. Now in his Spirit, he comes again to tabernacle amongst us, to come into our tabernacle, our temple, into the holiest of all places, our very soul. And when that happens, the idea is that we live in the fullness of that experience. It's a very sad passage of Scripture in the Old Testament where Israel sinned so grievously that the cloud lifted. Ezekiel saw this in a vision. You can read his book about it. And he said, it was so sad, I saw the cloud lift from the Holy of Holies. And then the cloud stood above the temple. And then the cloud moved off. And the last piece of that vision as he saw the glory of the Lord leaving the tabernacle disappeared. And yet everybody went on in the temple doing exactly the same things they'd been doing when the cloud was there. And they didn't know. And you know, you can be a Christian and be filled with the Spirit. And there can come sin into our lives in some form or other. And the glory of the Lord, the sense of the Lord's presence that only stays there if we're living holy lives is gone. But we continue in the temple doing all the same old things. And we don't even know that the glory has departed. Now, that's a wonderful start to this story. I think of people I've known where the glory cloud has covered their lives. And yes, I've seen them, but I've only seen them in a sense through the cloud. The girl that led me to Christ was like that. She gave me a poem when I first became a Christian. I thought it reflected what I saw in her, not only by the words you say, not only in your deeds confessed, but in the most unconscious way is Christ expressed. Is it a beautiful smile, a holy light upon your brow? Oh, no, I felt his presence when you laughed just now. For me, it was not the truth you taught, to you so clear, to me so dim. But when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. And from your eyes, he beckons me. From your heart, his love is shed till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. And when Jenny led me to Christ, yes, it was Jenny, but the cloud covered the temple. Now then, we're going to look at a man, Caleb, whose life was like that, and see how he was an example to his children. For it was Caleb and Joshua 
coming into the promised land, if you remember, who were the only two left of a million people. Now the children went into the promised land, but the original parents and adults that came out of Egypt, not one of them, not even Moses, went into the promised land. Two adults only. And then the children who'd grown up in that 40 years in the desert inherited the promised land. But why Joshua? Why Caleb? And Caleb in particular? Well, Caleb in particular, because he wholly followed the Lord. And when I say wholly followed, you can spell it W-H-O-L-L-Y or H-O-L-Y, because it means the same thing. When you wholly follow the Lord, it means the cloud covers your life, and the cloud follows you, and the cloud guides you, and the cloud helps you until you inherit your inheritance. And for his story, we need to turn to Numbers chapter 30 for a minute. And here we see that they've been out looking into the promised land. They come back to Moses and the whole Israelite community in Numbers chapter 13, verse 26. And they give a report to the whole assembly. And they show them this huge pomegranates and grapes that they've hauled back between them. And they say, oh, it's everything God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It is incredibly fruitful. Yes, there's giants there, says Caleb and Joshua, but God is bigger than the giants. Well, that's what Caleb and Joshua said, but all the other spies that went brought back a bad report. Verse 28, the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are there and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go out and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored. Now into 14. That night all the people started wailing and moaning and grumbling and Moses and Aaron were in trouble again. Oh, if only we died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Interesting attitude. Don't be intimidated when you're bringing your children into spiritual inheritance. Don't go around the world saying, oh, our children will be taken in plunder. The giants are too big for them. The challenge is too great. This world in which we live is too incredibly evil. Don't be like that. God doesn't appreciate it. And you're not supposed to be like that anyway. You're supposed to be like Caleb. Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Well, God was not very impressed with what was happening here. And so Moses begins to pray, and he prays a long prayer. 
and verse 20 of 14, the Lord says, I've forgiven them because you asked me to. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. And so there's the promise to Caleb. Now there's no Christianity without the cloud. You're not going to be this Caleb. You're not going to be this example to your children and see them inherit all the spiritual blessings that are here for them. Unless you realize the cloud has to cover the temple, that you, like Caleb, are responsible to wholly follow the Lord. Otherwise, you'll have this religion without the power, this tabernacle service, this doing without the cloud. No Christianity without the cloud. But the prerequisite is obedience, for there's no cloud without commitment. There is no cloud without commitment. Caleb wholly followed the Lord. How many times it says it? I tried to count them all up. Many, many times. Who says this? God says it. It's like God leading out of heaven over Jesus and saying, this is my beloved son. I'm so pleased with him. I'm so happy with him. He delights me. God did that in the Old Testament with Caleb. Caleb has a different spirit. He's my man. He's wholly following me. He is my beloved son. I am delighted with him. Does God do that when he looks at us? Does he see us wholly following the Lord? There is no cloud without commitment. You have to be a whole family, a holy family. Now, practically, what does that mean? It means that everything has to be exceptionally prioritized for God. Let me give you a very practical example. What comes first, school or church? What comes first, school or church? We ran a running battle through raising our children in America on that issue. And because we were a holy family who wholly followed the Lord, church came first. Yes, the kids were involved in many, many things in school, but it didn't come first. Church came first. And if there were activities, church activities, they were first. I believe that needs to be looked at today. Our youth pastors often have a running battle on their hands, not with the children, but with parents who for some reason put school and extracurricular things always in front of the activities of the tabernacle or the temple. Not so with the children of Israel. The tabernacle was set up in the middle. The tribes were set around it. It was in the center of their spiritual, social, service life. No cloud without commitment. Be a Caleb. Be a follower. And let your children see that for you, church comes first. Before everything else. That this is a prerequisite to being a family that wholly follows the Lord. Put your family around the activities of the body of believers, and you'll find that will stick you together as you go on into the promised land. Be a servant 
My servant, says God, has wholly followed me, a servant that wholly follows the Lord. Model that for your children. Secondly, no Christianity without the cloud, no cloud without commitment, no commitment without cost. Now, this is obvious. There's going to be war wounds. In 14 verse 10, the people were mad with Caleb and Joshua. The whole assembly talked about stoning them. Friendly fire. What a terrible thing when you're killed by friendly fire. When you're stoned by the very people who should be on your side. And if you're going to be a family that follows the Lord, your children will bear a little bit of that cost as you will in your community. It'll be hard. It will be difficult. There is no war without casualties. And Caleb knew that there would be a war. They were not going to inherit the promised land without a fight. Yes, the land was theirs, but they still had to take it. What happens when our children run up against this? It's hard sometimes. I'm the only one that has a curfew, my children used to say. And they were talking about all their friends who came to church. And our children grew up with curfews. Careful curfews. Fair curfews, we felt. They didn't. <laughs> and they would come home and say, but nobody in my church group has a curfew. No, not one of them had a curfew, except our kids. No, that's not true. A few of them did, but it was two or three in the morning, and we didn't feel that was very good for teenagers. And so our curfew was quite severe, probably, 11.30, 12 for special occasions, or they could call us if they wanted to stay extra from a party or something, and we would give permission or not give permission. But they had a curfew. And there was a cost to that commitment that put them in jeopardy under friendly fire from their own. But if you're going to be a follower, you're going to find out you're going to be a fighter. And if you're going to be a fighter, there's going to be some war wounds. But there's no cost without company, Caleb found out. Who was with him? Joshua. Who was with him? Moses. Who was with him? Aaron. Who was with him? Miriam. That was about all, but at least they sort of counted for thousands of others that weren't with them. Miriam, Aaron, Joshua, Moses. You know one way that you can really help your children? Be selective in the choice of your own friends and help them to be selective in the choice of theirs. They will model after the sort of friends you choose to hang around with, the sort of things you do together. And you might not realize it, but choice of company is something that the children model after. They really do. So be selective. Make sure there are Joshua's and Moses and Miriam's and Aaron's, people of the same mind as yourself, in your closest circle of social action. I think of this as a huge example to our children. I think of the people, the Moses, the Joshua's specifically, that our children had the privilege of being around in their most formative years. And as a holy family who wholly followed the Lord or tried to wholly follow the Lord, we tried to expose our children to God's best. We did this through books, through videos, through the sort of things that are available to us. But we did it through making sure that at Missions Festival, we always had missionaries in. And between Missions Festival, the missionaries that were around the church fellowship were invited in. Make sure that your family has those people in your home, those Joshua's. It will make a huge impression on them. 
and then expose them not only to camps where they can have fun, but to short-term missions. Just plan it in to your schedule. Again, make sure that as your children come up into teenage years, you've thought and talked this out, that perhaps not every single summer they're going to work to put money away from college. Not every summer. We talked about this a lot, and we decided that one summer out of their teenage working years would be involved with a teen mission, that we would sacrifice as a family and make sure that our children went and we would support them into doing that. Now, then the other summers, perhaps they would work, and they did work for money for college. But one of those, I remember Pete was involved in an outreach with overseas crusades. He was on a basketball team, and he went to the Philippines, and he spent the whole summer playing basketball, but also ministering on a Christian sports team. Here he was exposed all his life to God's best, to Joshua's and Miriam's and Aaron's and Moses, or Mosai's. <laughs> and he goes, on this team, Harry has got a dad who is world known as a preacher, and that certainly had its impact. But he goes on this team to the Philippines, and in the back place in this little town, the whole turn, town turns out to see these big Americans play basketball. It was a sure thing. The whole town would come. And then they would have a chance to preach and to teach at half time and afterwards. It was a very hostile environment, that particular situation, to the pastor who had invited the team there. His home had been attacked. His family had been threatened. And even though the town came out to see the Americans, when the pastor began to preach at half time, he was pelted with objects thrown, things thrown at him. And Pete said the whole team stood there with tears running down their faces as they saw this godly man continue through this hail of missiles that were aimed in his direction. And Pete said his face, mommy, his face was just, well, the cloud came down and covered the tabernacle. That's what happened. That's what he was trying to explain to me. And afterwards, Pete said, I went home and wrote in my prayer journal, I want to be a pastor like this man one day. And if you ask Pete when he was called to the ministry, that's when he was called to the ministry. Standing watching a little unknown Filipino pastor who was covered, his form was seen, but all Pete could see was the cloud. And that's what did it. And his Joshua was the reason that Pete went on to follow the Lord. Make sure that you expose your children to God's best. I think of Judy with her daddy in China and out in Bangladesh, desperately sick. No water, no medicine, having to come out in a truck. And the people that ministered to her were Randy and her husband. And it was seeing Randy and David that touched Judy very, very deeply and sent her on her way to serving God. David, 15 years of age, down in New Orleans with our youth team for the whole summer living on $2 a week because they weren't allowed any money or pocket money. They had to live as the missionaries did, down in the French Quarter, sitting on the sidewalks, talking to scruffy little kids, running the children's clubs. He came home, and I said, well, what's your summation of it? He said, well, one day I'm going to train. I'm going to go back to places like New Orleans and serve the Lord. Be selective. There is no cost without good company, and that fellowship would be something that is a good model for your children. And for a little word for hospitality, don't be afraid to open your homes up. I find that a lot of women are afraid that people aren't going to come to see the drapes or how well you cook 
or, or if your children behave themselves. Otherwise, we never open our homes up, right? Open your homes up for the sake of your children. Whatever your drapes are like, whatever, whether you think you have hostessing gifts or not, be hospitable. Have the love of strangers in your heart. This is one of the best things you can do. And I believe that Caleb wholly followed the Lord in that sense. So there is no cost without commitment. There is no commitment without cost, but there's no cost without that company. And of course, there's no cost without the comforter himself. Remember, if the Lord be with me, said Joshua, then I shall be able to drive them out. Numbers 13, verse 31. The people said, we are not able. Joshua said, yes, we are. And he had that incredible positive spirit. You come up into these teenage years, most of you. Don't be intimidated. Don't, don't look at the giants that face your children and say, we're, we're not able to fight them. They're too big. They're too strong. Look at the walled cities and there's too many people there and this, that, and the other. Refuse to be intimidated. Be a Caleb. Have another spirit in your heart. My servant Caleb, says God, has a different spirit and he wholly follows me and I will bring him into the land and his descendants will inherit it. Now we need to turn to Joshua and see what happened because in Joshua 14, we see them in the promised land. The land is theirs. Caleb and Joshua are there. The tribes have been claiming their piece of land. Joshua has been dividing up the land, the promised land between the tribes. The, each tribe is busy, responsible to drive out the enemies there. And you should read all of this Joshua part because it's very interesting. Uh, at the end of each of their campaigns to take over their piece of promised land, most of the tribes, it is said, could not wholly drive the people out. And then if you follow what happened with those people they never got rid of, as the history of Israel contains, you'll see that they were a snare to them and brought them down in the future. But Joshua and Caleb were something else, and Caleb specifically. So the areas of the Israelites received as an inheritance were being given. Now, verse 6, the men of Judah approached Joshua and Caleb said, Now you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. There it is again. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever. There's your promise. Because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. In my Bible, years ago, I wrote beside that text, the blessing of the children depended on the obedience of the parents. The blessing of the children depended upon the obedience of the parents. And that's something you can do. Sometimes you feel a little helpless. What can I do? Here it is. The blessing of the children depended. Because you have followed the Lord, your children are going to be blessed. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he's kept me alive for 45 years. I love this piece. He's kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses when Israel moved in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old, 40 years later. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country. Now this, I have to go back to the 
King James. Now here I am, the King James says, give me this mountain. And I love it. And that's what I've thought all these years. Give me this hill country doesn't quite do it for me. <laughs> I, I love this. Give me this mountain. 85. That's an encouragement to me. Here's this man. I'm just as strong. I'm just as vigorous. This guy at 85, he's as strong and as vigorous and as full of faith. And he's looking at all this mountain area, which must have been far harder to get rid of the Canaanites than it would have been on the hill, on, on the plain. And he says, well, I could have this or I could have that. But Joshua, see that? Hill country. Give me this mountain. Give it me. And of course, Joshua, under the hand of God, gives it him. Give me this hill country the Lord promised me the day you yourself heard then. The Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. I'm finding this difficult to read because my grandson has scribbled all over my Bible. But I think that's what it says. <laughs> and I love it because it reminds me of where he's been. He's been a follower. So here I am today. 40 years I've followed him, and here I am. He's been a fighter. I can do it. I'll drive them out, the Lord helping me. And he's a finisher. The Lord promised it. Let's go and enjoy it. Are you a follower? Are you a fighter? Are you a finisher? I hope you are. And that's what we want all of us to be. But it won't be without cost. Don Carson in his book, How Long, O Lord, says this. Sometimes we want to protect our children. I look at my own children, and I wish for them, now this is interesting, I wish for them, Don Carson speaking, enough opposition to make them strong, enough insults to make them choose, enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost, a cost eminently worth it, but still a cost. You don't hear that sort of thing in our prayers or talk very much. What do we want for our children? Do we want enough opposition to make them strong, enough insults to make them choose, enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost, a cost eminently worth it, but still a cost? I don't know. It's hard. But if you'll wholly follow the Lord and put him first, whatever sort of wounds you gather along the way, then God's promise is, He'll bring them in to the promised land. Because remember, the obedience of the parents has something to do with the faith of the children. It is not a shoo-in. It is not a sure thing. But if you do your part, then you have to leave the providence of God and the sovereignty of God with the rest. I remember quite a long time ago, Stuart was going to South Africa. Our children, and we were all here in the States at the time, and he wanted me to go with him. I was invited to go with him. It, would have, it, it meant being away for six weeks. I had never been away that long from the children. I'd always stayed put, and Stuart had traveled. And this was a difficult thing for me. The children were all teenagers. Pete was the youngest. He was 13 at the time. Judy went to be with her friends in California. She said, this is going to be wonderful. Go, Mom, go. I'm going to California. David was working that summer. That was his working summer here. He said, well, I'll stay home, and um, one of my friends is going to come and stay with me for a little bit in the house, and I'll look after the home. Go, Mom, go. Pete said, well, 
why don't you drop me off in England on the way so I can see Nana and, and the relatives? And he hadn't been back since we'd emigrated. And I thought, well, that's a neat opportunity. He didn't know my mother very well. He, he sort of left when he was pretty young. And I thought, well, I could leave him with my mom and let them get to know each other a bit on the way to South Africa, and then I could go to South Africa. And I want to tell you that I felt divided into five. I've always felt divided into five, pulled in every direction. I've always felt I've been pulled apart. Then how do you pull together when you find yourself in that situation? Well, we took off, and Pete and I went home to England, and I was going to stay two days and then go on to South Africa and leave Pete behind. I have a sister and three boys, three children, who are his cousins, just around his age, a little bit older than him. And so I thought, well, this would be a wonderful opportunity. At that point, those boys were not believers. My sister was not a believer. And so, and, and my mother, I wasn't quite sure what she felt about Jesus. They had never heard me speak, my husband preach, and I didn't know if they'd read any of our books. So this was the situation I was taking Pete into. The night before I left, early in the morning, Pete comes into my room, 12 o'clock at night. He's gangly, he's tall, he's six foot five, <laughs> a boy in a man's body, but still a boy. He sits on my bed and he begins to cry. And he says, I don't want to stay here. Take me with you. I said, Pete, don't do this. I can't take you with me. You don't have a visa, you don't have a passport, it's impossible anyway. I have to go, and you have to stay. I don't like it here. It's, it's not like I thought it would be. And, and I went around to play with the cousins, and they were busy doing other things, and, and I don't know if I want to do the things they're doing with their friends. And, and I, I don't really know Nana very much. Well, I tell you, it was my stomach. I thought, what happens if my mom finds out he doesn't want to stay with her? And you know, all this whole thing was just absolutely pulling me. Maybe I thought I could stay. Maybe I could cancel out. And I thought, oh, how can I do that? They're expecting me. Stuart's expecting me. It's, the, it's set up. I had just been reading the story. Actually, I was writing Here Am I. Sandera, and that's how long it is ago. I was finishing the manuscript, and I had just been reading, studying this lesson. And I had written in my Bible, before Pete walked into my room, the blessing of the children depends upon the obedience of the parents. And I thought about that, and I thought about how the family would get together and set up their little tents in the desert, and then the cloud would take off on them. And the parents would say, oh, no, it's moving again. And I've just got the kids to bed. Get the kids up. Oh, Mama, I don't want to get up. I'm tired. I've been walking through. Get up. The cloud's going. We have to go. Well, couldn't we just stay here? We don't have to follow that. We've got to go. They'd go how many miles? We don't know. They'd just settle down. The tabernacle would be set up, and everybody would watch the cloud. Good, it was set. In the middle of the night, off it would go again. Oh, no, the cloud's moving again. Can you imagine? But you know as well as I do, the blessing of the children lay in the obedience of the parents. They had to keep following the cloud. They had to keep it in sight. They could have stayed. The cloud wouldn't have been there. And having just done that lesson, I said to Pete, I got to go, Pete, and you've got to stay. And there were more tears. I left him in tears. That was one of the hardest times. My life is made up of goodbyes, and my life is made up of goodbyes with tears. But that was one of the hardest things I ever did, was to leave my 13-year-old son in England, go to South Africa for five weeks, 
and not hear from him for three, <laughs> because it took three weeks for his letter to be written and catch up with me. When it came, it's a keeper, I read to my amazement. Well, Mum, thanks to you and you-know-who, a little hand pointing upwards, <laughs> things are wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And I read this letter, I tell you, I read it 20 times, because what had happened was his misery had been obvious. My mother said to my sister, what are we going to do to help Pete settle in? And my sister said, maybe he'd like to go to Cape and Ray, which is where we'd worked and lived. And then my sister said, and maybe my boys could go with him. Now, this was a Christian youth center. These boys were not believers. They had never been to church, never been exposed. And so what happened was Pete ended up taking his three cousins to Cape and Ray. It was full, it always is, in August. But as they arrived, Major Thomas just happened to be standing on the steps. Major Thomas is never at Cape and Ray. He spends two weeks there, a year. But he happened to be there. He met my sister and the boys and, of course, recognized Pete. He said, hi, what are you doing here? Pete said, well, we, we came to stay and we knew it would be full, but we just thought maybe there'd be somewhere for us to sleep. And Major Thomas said, you can come and sleep in our flat. And he took my sister's three children and my Pete, and they kipped out on the floor in the Thomas's flat at Cape and Ray. And by the end of the week, all three boys had found Christ. And I tell you, that letter from my Pete is a keeper as he told me what had happened and what he'd learned. And in that instance, I remember thinking, the blessing of the children sure lied in the obedience of the parents. It's hard to follow the crowd. It's hard to figure out what's the right thing to do when you're pulled in all these different directions. But I can honestly testify that the children have inherited, our children, praise God, not because of the things we always did right, but they have inherited the spiritual Canaan in their own lives. And I believe it's because we tried with everything we could to wholly follow the Lord. They are now having to make that their own, as I say. The blessing of the children lies in the obedience of the parents. The refreshment of the children lies in a faith of their own, obviously. And they have to claim that for themselves. And you can read the rest of Caleb's story, how his daughters came to Joshua and said, well, you've given me this piece of desert at the bottom of the mountain that my father claimed, and that's fine, but what we need are the nether springs. Please give me the nether springs. And I love the picture. Their father claimed the mountains, and they claimed the springs in the valley. And they were a family that wholly followed the Lord and that said, let's claim what is ours. Let's enjoy the inheritance that our parents have insisted we find. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Caleb. Thank you that he wholly followed you. Thank you for the cloud, the glory of the Lord, the Spirit of God that can come into our lives and so fill us that people that see us, like the people in our home, our little children, are conscious of mommy. They can see our form, but there is something of Jesus so imminently there, so present. Lord, may we in practicality follow you. May we make right choices. May we make good friends. For our friends will influence our children, and the choice of our friends will influence our children, to influence them to choose good friends for themselves and help us to expose them to God's best, to the Joshua's, to the Moses of this world. 
And Lord, with all of that, help us to press on. However young we are, however old we are, may we be found at 85 saying, I'm just as strong as I was in God. I'm just as ready to do battle to God. I followed him, I fought for him, and I'm ready to do it again until the day I die. And may we be finishers. May we inherit. May we get there to the end of our journey, triumphant. And may God look from heaven and say, he's my man, he's my woman. With her, I'm well pleased. We ask it for Christ's sake and our children's sake. Amen.